We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. For Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 343 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Falcon on the Moon. Last time on the Space Rocket History Podcast. Coming up on pitch over, please. One, 15 at 1, 
Minus one. Minus one. Six percent fuel. Ten feet, minus one. Eight feet, minus one. Contact. Falcon is on the plane at Hadley. Roger, Roger, Falcon. No denying that, we had contact. That was a jubilant Dave Scott reporting Apollo 15 on the plane at Hadley. Here's how Dave Scott remembered the landing. As we did our landing, and as this system evolved, we got more and more capability. We had a little switch that we put in. And instead of trying to descend to the lunar surface by some visual display and a coordination of a, a throttle, we put a switch in a computer, and every time you flick the, sw the switch, it was spring-loaded, you get one foot per second change, which was a, a really nice way to land. You're coming down at 10, you go click, 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 click. You're coming down at seven, six, five, and you would probably hear on the ground on Earth the uh, the lunar module pilot, the guy on the right side, calling out these uh, descent rates, altitude and altitude rate, and it sounded like the guy flying it was really precise with that throttle. Well, he was. He had a computer there doing it for him. So you'd hear this neat, crisp ten feet per second, eight feet per second, you know, really smooth, click, 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 and you think, boy, that guy's really, really flying it. Well, he just hit a switch there. <laughs> you know, computer doing a whole thing. But uh, we, we also had some of these human factors considerations in the, the computer and the whole spaceship. And I remember one that got a lot of attention up here, uh, a lot of attention in Houston, too, was how to simplify the command of the, the computer to do the next step. And we had, finally, we developed a button called the Proceed button, Pro. And uh, I think probably everybody takes that for granted now. But, boy, if you could go through the iterations that we went through to get this Proceed button, which was a one-button push to have something happen. And a lot of people were afraid of having uh, no confirmation button, push Proceed and things happen. But we worked through that. Although I remember everybody in the lunar module during a landing had to think very carefully about which buttons they pushed because there were three buttons that you could push and had to push, as a matter of fact, in sequence. Uh, there was a proceed button in the computer. There was an engine shutdown button, which turned off the engine. And there was a, an abort button, which separated the ascent stage from the descent stage and aborted you. And all three buttons were in the same proximity. <laughs> and, you know, one of them was black background with a little pro written on it. Another one was blue and the other one was red. But they were all sort of the same size. And you really had to think about that coming down to the landing. Because when you got down, you had to hit the proceed button to put the computer to sleep for a while. Uh, when, when the uh, probes on the bottom of the landing gear touched the lunar surface, you got a signal in the cockpit and they were about, I don't know, 12 feet, 10 feet from the ground. And you had to shut the engine down then because on our flight in particular, we had an extend, extended engine bell. And if you settled on the lunar surface with the rocket engine running, you'd blow the bell out because of the compression. So as soon as you had the signal, you had to push the button to shut the engine down. But you didn't want to push the abort button because then you would never land. So it was a, 
really tricky situation. And the human factors things came in, but as I look back on it, I say, you know, it's probably, we probably got away with one there, you know, because nobody ever hit the wrong buttons that I know of. <laughs> Continuing with the landing, once the Falcon hit the ground, it pitched backward slightly and tipped to one side. There was a tremendous impact with a pitching and rolling motion. Everything rocked around, and Irwin worried all the gear was going to fall off. He was sure something was broken, and they might have to go into an abort scenario. The rules were, if you pass a 45-degree tilt and are still moving, you have to abort. After all, if the lunar module turns over on its side, you can't get back from the moon. But then, suddenly, everything went still. At exactly 104 hours, 42 minutes, and 29 seconds, after lifting off from Cape Kennedy in Florida, Scott reported, Okay, Houston, the Falcon is on the plane at Hadley. The plane Scott mentioned was a small tribute to Scott and Al Worden's alma mater, West Point, where parades were held on the plane. Roger, roger, Falcon, came Ed Mitchell's elated reply as applause erupted in the background. Dave and Jim froze in position as they waited for the ground to look at all their systems. Houston had to tell them whether they were at a stay condition. It was immediately clear that Falcon had landed on uneven ground, right on the rim of a small crater. The lunar module was tipped backward at a slight angle. It turned out later that one of the rear feet had landed in a shallow crater. But there was no time to reflect on this. They were spring-loaded to abort and leave again within seconds. The astronauts had to be ready to ignite the ascent engine and abort the mission immediately should any damage to Falcon or any major malfunction be detected. During these crucial moments, Jim and Dave, together with Mission Control, were totally absorbed with monitoring every aspect of the spacecraft and its systems to make sure that everything was in working order. Orbiting the moon, Al Worden was anxiously awaiting news of the system's review, too. He had passed out of visual communications range of the landing site by that time. Al had a three-day mission full of scientific experiments to complete and had performed a pretty complicated maneuver just before the landing to get himself back into a higher orbit. But if Scott and Irwin had to lift off, Worden would need to prepare for rendezvous. The signal that all was well would be a stay message from Houston. 77 seconds after touchdown, Mission Control gave the order. Good on board. 
Falcon Houston, you're stay T1. Roger, stay for T1. Dave and Jim pounded each other on the shoulder, feeling real relief and gratitude. They had made it and were cleared to stay on the moon. To the crew, it felt a little as if the long vacation they had been looking forward to so eagerly had at last arrived. Preparation for this moment had been long and extremely arduous, but now they were exactly where they wanted to be. Soon it would be time to take a look outside, and the prospect made Scott feel like a little kid waking up on Christmas morning, about to open his presents. All previous lunar crews had gone out on the surface very soon after touchdown because their time on the surface of the moon was limited to just over a day. Apollo 15's schedule, on the other hand, had been designed originally to include a sleep period before exploration began. But Dave Scott had realized early on in his training the importance of maintaining their circadian rhythms in order to perform at peak performance their three days on the moon. And with so much adrenaline pumping, there was just no way they could pull down the blinds shortly after landing and simply go to sleep. Though Deke Slayton and others in NASA management had initially opposed it on grounds that it would consume extra oxygen, the plan they had finally agreed on was for Scott to perform a half-hour stand-up EVA, or S-EVA, shortly after touchdown. This would be done by Scott climbing up onto the cover of the engine inside the Falcon and opening the upper docking hatch. Scott would stand up, poke his head out, and take a good look around. Scott had learned the value of such an initial reconnaissance during his geology training, but this would be a reconnaissance like no other. So, two hours after touchdown, after slowly depressurizing the cabin, Scott placed a protective outer helmet, a lunar excursion visor assembly over his inner helmet, and clambered up to his vantage point in his bulky, but now pressurized spacesuit. Pulling his oxygen hoses and communication cables behind him, he slowly hoisted his elbows onto the rim of the hatch. Scott found he could support his own weight quite comfortably in the reduced gravity and started to take in the view. Hey, Amato on the forward jump valve. Okay, overhead hatch, full open and latched. Hey, coming full open. Dave and Jim, Houston. Go ahead. Uh, Roger. Endeavor places you very near November Crater. Very close to November Crater. Oh. Okay, a little short, huh? A little short and a little north. Okay, Dave, uh, you got the hatch open? How about the LCG? 
ISA. Push them all the way. Well, give me a little. You want me to? Up there now? Yeah, just stand by. Okay, overhead hatches, open a latch. Okay, uh, sit on the engine cover facing forward. Unlock the drogue and rotate counterclockwise to release. Okay. I'll block the sun from on the instrument panel. Well done, Jim. Better device. Okay, Jim. Folks coming out. What an awesome view it was. Even with the protective filter across his visor, the sunlight reflecting off the crystal clear features of the surface was intense, contrasting sharply with the deep, rich blackness of the sky beyond. The low sun angle of the early lunar morning laid long shadows over the spectacular scenery spread before him. It was like an exhibition of exquisite images by the great photographer Ansel Adams. There was no color, but great contrast between the brightly illuminated surface and the black shadow of the mountain slopes and craters where no sunlight fell. Oh boy, what a view. Irwin handed a bearing indicator and a large orientation map up to Scott and he began to give a number of precise location indicators and started to take a series of high-resolution connecting photographs of the full panorama that encircled them. Okay, Dave, you ready for me to hand you the map? Yeah, I can see uh, Pluton and Icarus and Chain, Five. Horse St. George, Window Spur. Beautiful. Fantastic. Okay, let's get a good fix. Hand me the uh, compass there. Okay. Hey. Okay. On the map. This is the sun compass first. 
get a pick on our position. And actually, at this sun angle, Joe, there's no direct sunlight coming into the cabin. Roger, Jim, understand. Okay, hand me the, uh, the big overlay map, Jim. Okay. Let me know when you're ready for the cameras. Okay. And Falcon Houston, it looks like water separator two is holding up fine. Okay, good, Joe. Okay, Joe, our uh, bearing to uh, Icarus is 338. Copy. Uh, Icarus is a crater in the north complex. Uh, Scott also reported being able to see St. George, which is a crater to the south of the landing site uh, on the flanks of uh, Hadley Delta. Dave, be advised, we're going to be hustling you along here. We think uh, we know pretty well where you are, so maybe uh, we shouldn't spend too much time just on location. Okay. Another quick one. Bennett Peak is... Uh... Two five five. Roger. Hey Dave, and the first camera works with the uh, sixty millimeter lens. Okay. Uh, Roger, Dave. Maybe one more bearing. Up. Okay. Coming up. Take Hadley Delta at about one eight two. Roger. And Dave, a bearing on a close feature, if you can identify it, please. I can't right now, Joe. Roger. Get on with the photography uh, here. Roger, we agree. Okay, you want 22 frames in the my uh, fan, Dave. Scott was now looking at the magnificent moonscape they were about to explore, and he could hardly contain his excitement as he began a very detailed running commentary on what he could see. Hey, let me start uh, by uh, 12 o'clock, Joe, and I'll go around real quick. On the uh, far distant horizon, uh, apparently across the rill, I can see uh, just about our one o'clock now, a, uh, a very large mountain, which I'd have to call uh, Hill 305. Roger. And uh, all, of the, all of the features around here are very smooth. The tops of the mountains are rounded off. Uh, there are no sharp, jagged peaks. There are no large boulders apparent anywhere. The whole surface of uh, the area appears to be smooth, with the largest fragments I can see are in the uh, walls of Pluton. Uh, there are no boulders at all on uh, St. George, Hill 305, Bennett, or as far as I can tell, looking uh, back up at Hadley. Hadley's sort of in the shadow. Uh, it's a gently rolling terrain, completely around 360 degrees, hummocky much like uh, you saw on 14. The uh, pitch line ac across the rill 
Hill 305 around to 1 o'clock. Seems to be a slightly lighter in albedo with some uh, white uh, marks from uh, craters, recent craters apparently. Uh, Bennett Hill also has uh, a lighter colored albedo. One face of it, uh, that facing the sun now, is almost completely white. Uh, as I come around to my 2 o'clock, uh, the horizon is really the northern complex. I can see, uh, as I mentioned before, Chain, Icarus, and Pluton. Uh, very rounded, subdued craters. Uh, it looks like the southern rim of Pluton is on the same level as our uh, location here. The northern rim is somewhat higher. I'd say uh, distances are difficult, but maybe uh, 50 meters higher. I can see the start on the other side of the north rim of Pluton. Uh, all of it very flat, smooth, and gently rolling. Inside walls of Pluton are uh, fairly well covered with debris, fragments uh, up to, I'd estimate, maybe oh, two to three meters, irregular, no layering, uh, just sort of scattered around, and maybe the walls have uh, five percent fragments. The Pluton that Dave mentioned was one of the craters they planned to visit on their third and final day of lunar exploration. I look on around Mount Hadley itself is in the shadow, although I can see the, the uh, ridge line on the top of Mount Hadley, it too is smooth. I see no jagged peaks of any sort. Uh, the hill, I would call number 22 on your map, uh, far distance also looks smooth, rounded, no uh, prominent features. I'll uh, skip the distant field around to my 6 o'clock. Because it's all in the shadow, and looking into the sun, of course, it obliterates almost everything. As I look on down to uh, my uh, 7 o'clock, I guess I see Index Crater here, the near field, but uh, back up on uh, Hadley, to the east of the Hadley Delta, by again, I can see a smooth surface. However, I can see liniments. Picture uh, for you. There's some very interesting. Take uh, Silver Pass and look at uh, 13 on your map. I can't tell whether it's 13 or 16 right now because of the sun, but there appear to be liniments or lineations running, uh, dipping to the uh, northeast parallel, uh, and they appear to be maybe 3% to 4% of the total elevation of the mountain, uh, almost uh, uniform. I can't tell whether it's structure or uh, internal stratigraphy or what, but uh, there are definite linear features there uh, dipping to the, to the northeast at about, uh, well, I'd say 30 degrees. And as I look up uh, to Hadley Delta itself, I can see what appears to be a, a sweep of linear features uh, that curve around uh, from the western side of Hadley Delta on down to uh, the spur down there. 
and they seem to be dipping to the to the east at about uh, 20 degrees. These are much thinner uh, lineations on the mountain uh, than I saw before. These probably are less than 1% of the total elevation of the mountain. The uh, craters on the side of Hadley Delta are rather few. Around uh, Window and Spur, those that you see on your maps are the only ones I can see. And there appear to be, oh, about a dozen up in that particular area. I might associate those with a secondary cluster if I uh, took a guess at it. See, nothing that indicates any flow down uh, or a landslide down uh, Hadley Delta. Only uh, some subtle changes in topography. Uh, there's one bright, fresh crater right next to uh, St. George on the eastern side, which is almost white and albedo, and it's got an ejecta blanket about a crater diameter away. How are you copying so far? Superb description, Dave. Got every single word. Beautiful. And uh, we'll ask you to hustle on around and give us something on the near field, plus a comment on ALSEP deployment uh, possibilities. Uh, superb uh, communication, though. Beautiful. Okay, uh, coming on around to St. George, it again is a very subtle old crater, but uh, in this case I can see some liniments running, uh, dipping to the uh, west at about uh, 20 degrees parallel to the rim of the crater. These two are very small, less than a percent, and uh, continuous parallel. The rim of the crater is very subdued and smooth. Uh, coming around, I'll just take a quick look at the near field for you here. It's all generally the same. Uh, the crater density is, I'd say, quite high or somewhat higher than I expected. Sizes are mostly less than about 15 meters. Uh, the only large crater that I see is uh, what I believe to be indexed back here, about the uh, 8 o'clock. And it has a very subtle rim, almost no shadow in the bottom of it. I think that's one of the uh, things that was deceiving on the descent. There are very few uh, deep, sharp craters in the area. Uh, the distribution of fragments appears to be less than percent on the surface. They vary from uh, a centimeter in size up to maybe uh, three or four inches. Most of them appear to be angular. I see some white ones. Uh, I can give you some more of that. Scott's commentary was not only for the benefit of the man who had helped so much in preparing him for this mission, Professor Lee Silver, and other geologists in the back room at Mission Control. Scott also wanted to convey some of the beauty of this place to everyone listening to their transmissions on that hot July evening back in Houston and elsewhere in the world. A particular concern to Houston was the area's ease of mobility for the rover. They called this trafficability. Trafficability looks pretty good. It's hummocky. I think we'll have to keep track of our position. But I think uh, we can manipulate the rover fairly well on a straight line. And I, I can see the base of the front as near as I can tell. Matter of fact, I think I see where the front runs in to uh, the level ground where we get that five degree inflection. I see no boulders over there whatsoever. Looks like we'll be able to get around pretty good. Roger, Dave, we copy. 
And as far as outfit deployment, uh, unfortunately, looking straight ahead at zero phase, it's bust out somewhat. But if there's uh, continuity of the surface that I see in our general uh, position, I don't think we'll have any trouble taking the outfit about 300 or so and uh, placing it. I just noticed a couple of items uh, on the far side of the rail on the, on the flat horizon, uh, Sally Port West there, look like a couple of very large boulders on the horizon. Just unique, two of them are quite bright and, and uh, quite sharp. I uh, cannot see Hadley Sea at all, as we thought we might be able to. Bennett Peak is about all I can see in the direction of Head Valley. Roger, Dave, is that down towards Head Valley? Uh, traffic ability up. Right, down, yeah, that's correct. And the uh, traffic ability up to uh, the northern complex looks the same. I see no large boulders. Uh, the slopes uh, go up maybe uh, 5, 10 degrees at the most. And beyond that, uh, all the terrain looks pretty, pretty smooth. Dave was having this conversation with his friend, Joe Allen. He was the astronaut chosen as Capcom for lunar surface communication. Uh, Roger, Dave, we think it just uh, may look closer to you. Sounds like we're in business, old friend. Yes, it, it, it just looks closer, I'm sure, but uh, we are indeed in business. And I think uh, once we get through here and I hop back down, why uh, we can talk over more of what I've been seeing up there. With the stand-up EVA reaching 30 minutes, Capcom Joe prompted Dave, signaling it was time for him to climb back inside and close the hatch. Scott knew he was right. They had to keep on schedule. The clock was ticking. But it was still hard for Dave to tear himself away from such a spectacular view. However, it was time to eat and then get some sleep. Uh, Roger, Dave, uh, you're coming up on 30 minutes into the SEVA, and uh, we don't have any more questions. Uh, you've answered everyone beautifully. Outstanding. Okay, Joe, I'll take another quick look around, see if anything uh, looks unique. There's just so much out there I could uh, talk to you for hours. Do you have any specific questions before we uh, close, call it quits? Dave, we're, we're hoping you will be talking to us for hours about it. We don't have any specific questions right now. We'll think about it and uh, talk to you again once uh, you button up. Uh, maybe one last look for an ALSEP deployment position, and uh, we've copied that you've gotten both sets of pictures for us. Uh, that's correct, Joe. I, I uh, limited myself somewhat on the, uh, the 500s because I think we'll get a chance to take a lot more of those. But I did get the uh, pans for you. Uh, Roger, Dave. Uh, we're quite and satisfied, the, uh, and I uh, would, would like uh, for you to climb back in now, please. Okay, coming down. The crew's evening meal consisted of high-energy, low-residue, reconstituted food. Tomato soup was big on the menu. There was no hot water supply in the lunar module as there had been in the command module, so all their meals on the lunar surface were served cold. 
and they soon discovered that there was not really enough to eat either. Exploring the moon turned out to be very hungry work, and the astronauts recommended subsequent missions to provide with additional supplies. But that was of little help at the moment. Still early on the moon, as they prepared to sleep, the crew stripped down to their long johns. Apollo 15 was the first lunar crew to get completely out of their spacesuits while on the moon. Previous missions had been too short, but given how long they would be spending on the lunar surface, for them it was essential. That first night, they pulled down the blinds of the lunar module's two small triangular windows to block out the intense sunlight and strung up their hammocks across the cramped cabin, which was only about the size of four telephone booths. Dave's hammock was positioned fore and aft, and Jim was across side to side with his hammock slung under Dave's. Back at the Cape during simulation, they had a lousy night trying to sleep in the hammocks. But their reduced weight on the lunar surface gave them a much softer feel. With the background mechanical symphony of the lunar module's pumps and fans, Jim and Dave popped in earplugs and were pretty comfortable as they settled down to sleep for their first night on the moon. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 343 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, Falcon on the Moon. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on July 30th. If you are new to the podcast, what we are trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times and now I have reached the year 1971. I try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all the countries in the world. Up to this point, that has been mainly the United States and the Soviets, but we have covered other countries as well. Something else to be aware of, if you are listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. I place the first 173 episodes on the Archive podcast. To find them, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. And if you would like a better copy of those archive episodes, as they were originally released with all the afterthoughts, they are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. Here's an interesting little tidbit I discovered for this episode. When the Falcon landed on the moon, it hit so hard that Jim Irwin declared, BAM! 
Now that BAM was misinterpreted as a swear word in some news outlets. But in Irwin's book, he confirms that he said BAM, B-A-M, not the rhyming swear word. Just a little tidbit there. Now, when the Falcon landed, it pitched backwards and tilted to one side. Now, let me tell you, that must have been a scary situation. It is, if it tilted more than 45 degrees, the astronauts had to abort right there. So, thankfully, it came to a rest quickly. But it was definitely at a tilt, as can be seen on last episode's pictures that I posted on the website spacerockethistory.com. That, of course, was the first stand-up EVA on the moon. And I hope I explained it well enough. In case I didn't, what happened was, instead of poking his head out the egress door on the side, Scott opened up the docking port on the top of the lunar module. Then he stood on top of the engine cover. He climbed on top of that engine cover and stuck his head out and got a full 360-degree view of the landing site without ever having to step foot on the surface. It was just a little, just a little, just a little like going on top of the conning tower of a submarine. I thought that was a great idea because you surely couldn't get a good view out of the windows of the lunar module. And with this method, you got to see all the way around. And you could do a little advanced preparation for the moonwalks and rides, such as checking the trafficability. And during the reconnaissance, Scott gave an excellent description of what he saw, one of the best I've heard. Of course, Scott and Irwin were originally scheduled to go to sleep after the landing, and that, to me, would have been very difficult, particularly after that hard landing and tilting backward. So, I think Scott's idea of having a stand-up EVA was a really good one. Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions, and I would like to thank David S. from California, who donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Pete P. from Georgia sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Antoinette K. from New Jersey donated at the Apollo level. Michael C. from the U.K. donated at the Apollo level. Debbie T. from the Flatlands of Cambridgeshire, England donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. And Bill S. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Our total Patreon donors have reached 246. We actually lost four over the since the last episode. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 361. 
with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike, and hello, everyone. It's time for our drawing. Remember, the winner will get a choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers. Now, with the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 361 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. Now, I'd like to share an update as we really appreciate all the well wishes and prayers for our daughter and first granddaughter. Our daughter's pregnancy is considered high risk because with her past pregnancy, she developed gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, preeclampsia, and HELP syndrome, which caused a premature delivery at 34 weeks. Now, both mom and baby had to be given blood and stay in the hospital longer than expected, but they did very well. So with this pregnancy, the doctors are monitoring her and baby very closely. She's now between the 34th and 35th week, and the doctors have run a lot of tests to check for risk factors or distress, but we don't know all the results yet, but the doctors say that things are looking good so far for mom and baby at this point, and I can't tell you how very, very thankful we are for that. We sure are thankful. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by Dave Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, An Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon by Al Worden, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 344 posted by Thursday, July 30th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.